This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Mark Thompson. Mark is the founder of NNN Capital and Grocery Anchored. Mark has been in the commercial real estate industry for the last 20 years. I'm excited to have him on the show today. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here, buddy. Awesome. Mark, tell us a little bit more about you and and what you're up to these days. Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess in the beginning, I started commercial real estate, uh, doing office tenant rep uh, for CBRE in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, We tenant rep the Commonwealth, Virginia uh, for two years. I was a low man on a three-man team. And then got into investment sales. My timing was perfect. I started investment sales in the summer of 2008. <laughs> started my uh, investment sales career uh, just before uh, Lehman fell uh, that September. I can remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, so I started my investment sales career, and the first deal I ever did was a, a little strip deal, uh, three tenants. Uh, actually, it was one tenant, two of which had, uh, had blown out. So it was a three-spaced strip center. Sold that for $225,000. And then over the course of time, over the course of just slugging it out, uh, ended up doing grocery anchor shopping center investment sales. So from $200,000, $225,000, the biggest deal we've done to date was $112 million public's portfolio across three different states. So uh, did investment sales for a while and then got into the tech side of things. Uh, we launched groceryanchor.com in 2018. Uh, and that's been a great, a great success for us and a lot of fun. And then we, uh, we uh, also do stnl.com. We've got a team of, of guys that sell single tenants and just recently acquired triplenet.com, which is a lot of fun as well. So we're really busy. Uh, 2020 was a crazy year, as, as we all know. And then 2021, uh, we're, we're glad 2020 is behind us. So you asked me what I'm working on today. Well, we're working on uh, Grocery Anchor 2.0. Uh, this year, and also the launch of uh, triplenet.com. And then we also, uh, to add more to it, uh, we also have the Internet Academy, uh, which is basically going to teach first-time investors how to buy uh, triplenet leases. Every day is different, uh, but it's a lot of fun, and I enjoy what we do here at NNN Capital. So thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. Awesome. So at NNN Capital, is the, the primary source of revenue Commercial real estate deals? Is it the tech side? What what's driving the bus here? Yeah, so it's we have the tech side, which you know I think today is is um, is is fascinating and interesting and ever changing. Uh, and then we also obviously obviously do transactions. I think over time the tech will take over the transactions in terms of revenue. But you know I think with twenty twenty, uh, we actually had a pretty decent year on the revenue side for transactions as well. So. Uh, our goal is to be more on the tech side, uh, but as we build 1.0 and 2.0, see what works and what doesn't work, uh, we're you know doing transactions to make sure we have plenty of capital in order to invest in the tech side of things. And you, Mark, are you focused on running your business or are you making deals or both? What is what is the day to day of Mark Thompson? Yeah, so that's a that's a fun fun question. So. Uh, you want to work on the business, not in the business. And so I'm doing everything I can to fire myself from working in the business. And we've got some great guys here that transact the deals for us. Hey, I've got brokerage in my genes. 
it's really hard to, to stay out of it, you know, because I just love transactions. It's so much fun. Uh, but more, more or less working on the business right now. So uh, that's my day to day and doing a lot of coaching, a lot of teaching for, for our younger guys. And then also on top of that, basically running the bus in terms of tweaking grocerynger.com and, and building nnn.com as well. And how many, how many brokers do you have working for you on the transaction side? Yeah, total, our total company is right around 18 right now. So we got four, four guys on the transaction side. Uh, and then we've got about 14 people on the other side of things working on the tech side. And we've got some outsourcing as well with some, some tech guys who are much more sophisticated in terms of programming, that sort of thing. So um, we've, we've got a pretty decent shift. Awesome. And so let's talk about the tech side. What are you trying to accomplish with the tech side? What are you, what are you doing with the tech right now? What can it do today and what are you trying to do? Yeah. So grocery.com, uh, just to kind of take a step back, there's roughly 25,000 grocery stores throughout the country at any given time. Uh, there's between 500 and 700 that are on the market for sale. And what we found is that there's not one place if you're specifically in the grocery anchor sector that you can find all of those very, very easily, very, very quickly. And so grocery.com is kind of like, um, if you think of, I don't know, co like cable, grocery.com is kind of like the golf channel. So if you're really into golf, if you're really into grocery anchor shopping centers, uh, grocery.com is a great resource for you. So what grocery.com does is, is, is very, very simple. We show you every deal that's on the market. We show you every transaction. And then we also have a news feed that basically goes through and uh, call it distills the real estate news in the grocery sector. So, for example, we have, I think we're approaching 20,000 articles. You can search by uh, by banner and see every real estate related newspaper article that's out there. So as an example, I think a, uh, a couple of months ago, there was, I don't know, one point two million dollars worth of cocaine found in a banana box in uh, a grocery store. And oh, my God. As, as interesting as that is, you know, I, I don't think our 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 uh, subscribers care about that as much as they care about transactions. And they, you know, so every day we're going through slip and falls and lawsuits and getting rid of all that stuff and filtering all that stuff out to distill the 20 to 40 articles that, you know, Chris Ress can log on to grocery.com within a matter of minutes, know exactly what's happened on the real estate side of things. So we're filtering we're filtering the news and then we're filtering out all the other kind of ancillary um, product types that are out there. So you can basically get on and get off very, very quickly and have your expertise pretty much curated for you in about five to 10 minutes. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty simple concept, uh, but you know, it's kind of like taking a specific channel of CoStar and distilling that. If you're an expert in that particular business, it, it helps you out a great deal. Very, very cool. And the getting to what's on the market, how are you making sure you have everything on the market? Because it's not like as transparent as the residential business. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we don't we curate everything ourselves uh, and we talk with brokers all the time. And obviously, if you're a broker, you want your product on as many platforms as you can. At least most brokers do. Now, what I should say is about grocery.com, you have to be a landlord of a grocery or shopping center to subscribe. And so that helps us in some ways. It helps us because those brokers that want to showcase their particular grocery or shopping center to landlords only, we're the only platform that they can do that for. And so that interaction with us and brokers, I guess, would accelerate our ability to have a pretty decent coverage of grocery or shopping centers that are out there because we can tell them, hey, look, 
Uh, your grocery anchor shopping center will be exposed to members, members only, and every member is indeed an owner of a grocery anchor shopping center. So I think that helps us in that regard. And the other thing is we also report comps, comparable sales. And one of the things we don't do, and this, you know, I get this question all the time when we talk about it with uh, prospective uh, customers, is we don't tell you who, who bought the shopping center. Uh, we tell you what it sold for, we give you the cap rate, give you the NOI, give you all the pertinent details. And then we tell you who the broker was that brokered the deal. Uh, and because we do that, uh, a lot of brokers will give us information that they otherwise wouldn't do that deal. Now, there's customers out there that wish we showcase the buyer, but they're also happy to see a, a pretty significant amount of information on the sale comp as a result of that. So if there is a principal to principal uh, situation, we'll tell you who the seller was and we'll tell you who the buyer was, and that's that. And we'll let them decide whether they want to tell you who the buyer was on that deal. So um, on a principal to principal, you'll tell who the buyer is, but when there's no, when there's a broker involved, you don't tell who the buyer is. And what's the purpose of that? I think as, a, as brokers really appreciate the idea and concept that we're going to, if someone has an interest in the deal and how it transacted, we're going to guide you to the broker on that, the broker that transacted the deal. And Got because it. of that exchange, we have brokers give us information they wouldn't otherwise give other services or platforms. Got so it. I think you've got to be you've got to be fair and, and you've got to look at all the constituents involved because you know you can't just throw information out there haphazardly and expect to have all constituents uh, be thrilled about that. So that's what we've kind of tried to do to bridge the gap. I mean, I'm a former broker, so I know what it's like to 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 be on the uh, flip side of a platform like that. And I've tried to make sure that we've curated in such a way that we're fair to those folks. Very cool. And these members, there's it's an annual subscription, monthly subscription. How does it work? Yeah, it's an annual subscription. And uh, we people do a preview and then and then sign up accordingly. And then you know, we give them all the information we can on the grocery and good sector. I like to say that we're kind of applying to be their intern. You know, if you had an intern that was never sick. Uh, that was an expert in grocery anchor shopping centers that basically when you walk through the door every day had a, a stack full of articles for you to read, told you every deal was on the market and every deal that transacted, uh, that'd be a pretty good intern. And so that's kind of what we're doing. We're kind of like applying to be the intern for various companies, be it REITs or mom and pops, and we've had success doing that. So that's the that's the angle there. Very, very cool. So that's the groceryanchor.com, and, but you have STNL, STLN.com and a bunch of, uh, a couple other websites and tell, tell us about those. Yeah, so stnl.com is just traditional brokerage. We have a handful of uh, single tenant brokers that are on and transacting STNL, single tenant net lease products throughout the, the Southeast, probably in Florida. Uh, but those guys are transacting those deals. But what we're really excited about is triplenet.com. Uh, that was a, a domain name that we kind of spent three or four years trying to acquire. We own the word triplenet.com. We bought that uh, many, many years ago, but you can't own triplenet.com without owning nnn.com. So we spent, uh, it was a, it's a long story. It's a four year process. We bought it from a guy in Japan. It got stolen by a group of Chinese. We filed a federal lawsuit in DC. I and mean, it was just, it was crazy. I've never experienced anything like it. Uh, but we look at, you know, domains as real estate on the internet. And so we wanted to have that domain. So triplenet.com is something we hope to launch in 2021. And we're working on that. Certainly the triplenet business is an exciting business to be in. I personally think that there's a, there's a lot more brokers in that space now than there were even five, six years ago. There's some great brokerage teams. And I think there's, we're seeing brokerage houses that come out and just specialize in triplenet transactions. 
but there's not a platform out there that's that's really captured the triple net market in such a way that you know you can go to this platform and understand everything that's going on in the space. And so we hope to build that and build it well, and we'll interact with with the brokers out there, the, the top line brokers, and make sure that we build a product that they're happy with. And I think the other thing is, is that I don't think the triple net market uh, is even tapped. Uh, there's so many people out there that don't even understand that you can actually own a Starbucks. You know, I mean, Chris, you know this, you've been in the business a long time. Most people who are listening to this podcast understand that, but there's a whole ecosystem of untapped folks out there that are looking to deploy their hard-earned money into a safe investment, a tangible investment. I don't even think we've tapped the surface for the amount of people that want to buy or own triple nets. Uh, and I, because I, I just don't think they even understand that you can own one. So we're looking forward to educating the market in that capacity and driving more investors, potential first-time investors to the space through NNN.com. And hopefully the brokers that are on there benefit from that. Uh, and the whole industry and the whole ecosystem, the whole vertical of triple nets benefits from that as well. So that's a huge and monumental task and hopefully one that we're up to do. And, you know, it'll take multiple versions. So uh, be patient with us out there as we develop it. But we're thrilled about the acquisition of NNN.com and launching that product towards the end of 2021. What? sectors or what, how will you find your target audience for that? Who are you going to target? Cause that's an interesting, quite candidly, we've got some ideas on classes at DLC and, you know, things that we're planning on doing, but I'm curious who, who would you target? Would it be like, you're going to target the doctors of the world or are you going to target like multifamily operators who might not understand about this? Or what would you, who are you targeting? Yeah. So for, for, First time investors, I think that there's, I mean, we just started, I've been thinking about this for years, but we just started to really put pen to paper in terms of a strategy to, to find those type of investors. And I don't, I don't necessarily want to get in too much into the secret sauce, but there's opportunity out there. And I think that um, on, a, on a larger scale to be able to, to, to get out there and get the word out there to beat the drum, so to speak, on this particular vertical. And I, like I said, I don't think we've even scratched the surface of it. So you know, I, I think that there's certainly folks out there, if you want to deem high net worth individuals, someone that, you know, $500,000 worth of equity out there that can deploy, they can play in this space. How many folks out there have $500,000 of equity? There's quite a few. I mean, relative to the amount of folks that are playing in the space, the single tenant space, there's a ton of untapped potential out there. So I'm not really answering your question. I'm kind of dodging it, uh, to be to be quite frank. But uh, we feel like there's a ton of opportunity out there and and we're just ready to go tap into it. Really uh, excited to see what you guys uh, keep doing. I want to pivot the conversation and talk a little bit about your, you've been focused on the grocery anchored world and you have a lot of information that others don't have on uh, the grocery anchored world. Uh, let, let's start with the investment sales market as it relates to grocery stores. What happened in 2020 as it relates to grocery anchor shopping centers trading? Yeah, so uh, obviously it, it, it took a hit as a result of COVID. It was not, uh, it was not immune to that. And, and there's debate as to exactly why that is, but predominantly it's because of the shop space. Uh, investors didn't quite know how to capitalize shop space tenants, but let's just get into the facts. So if you talk about the investment sales market in terms of the total number of deals that went to market, 2019 versus 2020. I've got some notes right here. So 2019, 606 grocery anchored shopping centers went to market across the country 
in 2019. 2020, 389. So that's a drop of 36% of inventory that went to market across the country in the grocery maker space. Now, when did that hit? Again, I'm referring to my notes right here, but you had a huge drop in terms of total deals in the grocery anchored sector uh, in the month of obviously March, April, and May. May was a low point. So May typically, and I'm again referring to my notes here, in 2019, we had 115 grocery anchored shopping center centers at the market. In 2018, we had 119. In 2020, you wanna guess how many grocery anchored deals hit the market in the month of May? Oh man, that's a great question. Uh, let's say 37. Good guess. Really good guess. 27. Oh. So 27. That's a drop of 77%. So obviously the month of May is a big month because we're all going to Vegas in the month of May. And that's when everyone kind of ramps up their, their listening because as a broker, the last thing you want to go do is sit down with Chris Ressa and not have inventory to show him. Uh, so that's a huge month in the grocery market sector. That was down basically 77%. So for the year, for the year of 2020, we were down basically 30 to 35 to 38%, depending on how you count of those particular deals. Now, that's deals to market. We're not talking about sales. So if we look at the number of sales, uh, let me just paint a picture for you here. Going into the month of January in 2020, uh, we were at a total number of 74 transactions for the month of January. So we're not talking about deals to market, we're talking about actual consummated transactions. So 74 transactions in the month of January 2020, that was up from 42 in 2019. So we came out of 2019 cooking with gas, that's up basically 70 some odd percent, 75% year over year. Then you go to February. February, we had 54 transactions in the grocery record sector. That was up 25% from 43 in 2019. So 74 in, 20, in 2020, January, 54 in 2020, February, 58 in March, which relative to 2019 was one off. So basically 58 in March of 2020, 57 in 2019, April hits. So April, uh, we went down 60%. So the market basically came to a screeching halt. We had 25 grocery anchor transactions in the month of April. Kudos to those sellers for closing those deals in escrow in the midst of uh, the COVID pandemic. Uh, prior to that, in the month of April 2019, we had 63. So think about this in this four to five month swing. You go into January 2020 up 76% year over year for that month. You hit April and you're down 60%. So I'm not great at math. I'm from Tennessee. That's 136% swing right there. And so that's what happened to the market. And uh, how many how many transactions happened in May? So we're, we're still solving for that because normally you have to get about six to seven months out. We're still finding a couple more in there, but we'll have those answers out. We're actually going to produce that. We'll have that out probably next week, next 10 days. Got it. And I can tell you just from our rough numbers that we don't have an exact number on that but it was less than April. I can tell you that. So we had 25 in April and it was less than that in May. And obviously June and July was, was a cold, cold time. That said, we start to see things get better uh, towards the end. And again, we're getting the numbers finalized on this. It'll probably be out by the time the podcast hits, by the time, by the time you air this, but June, July, August hits, September hits. I think people just got fed up. They had to say, they just said, look, I can't sit on the sidelines. I've got this money. I've got to deploy it. Let me get the best bad answer for myself. And I think, Pretty much the sellers had been beaten up pretty bad by COVID. And there were some sellers out there that just had to monetize. So there were in there that occurred with, you know, quite, a, quite frankly, COVID pricing. 
But if, if sellers were looking for, you know, maxed out value, that certainly didn't happen. But if buyers were looking for this huge, huge COVID discount, we didn't see that in mass. We did not see that in the grocery anchor space. We just saw the deals get delayed. So I think, you know, it's going to be very fascinating to see what we what it looks like at the end of January 2021 and compare 1920 and 2021 and see how we do this year. Uh, I think that, you know, you're probably a better person to talk about this because you're on the leasing side of things and you, you see it up close every day in terms of how tenants are doing. But I think that we're going to see 2021, uh, the grocery anchor sector has already started to rebound and will start rebounding. I think, you know, we, we probably won't mirror 2019 and 2021, but I think by 2022, we'll mirror 2019 in that regard. Very interesting stuff. I really, I love the statue rattled off. I, I don't love them. I love that you have them. Uh, how are you seeing, based on all the networking you do and the information you have, where are the lenders right now in their in their response to the marketplace? What are you what are you seeing from the lender market? Yeah, so if you're over a hundred thousand square feet on a shopping center, a very tough for a lender to get excited about that kind of deal. So what we're seeing lenders do is if, if that particular Publix or the Vons or the Kroger, whatever it may be, uh, represents north of fifty five percent of the GLA, and typically if it's north of fifty five percent of the GLA, it's going to be north of fifty five percent of their gross income. Uh, lenders are more apt to loan on that kind of deal and loan aggressively. Uh, but that being said, if you're over 100,000 square feet, if your uh, grocery box doesn't have transparency on sales, uh, if you uh, are, uh, you know, riddled with shop space, it's very difficult to get a loan on that kind of product right now. So it's it's kind of the tale of two cities, the best of times and worst of times, because lenders are out there aggressively loaning on deals that are you know, credit worthy boxes with 60% NOI and 60% GLA. But man, it is difficult to get a deal done over 100,000 square feet. Very, very difficult to do. Unless again, it's, you know, class A and, and we're seeing Whole Foods deals transact and, and that type of product class. Uh, but, you know, Whole Foods, I've always said, like, if you if you own a Whole Foods, you basically, you know, got a membership to retail relevancy and perpetuity because your, your, your anchor is Amazon. So, that's a little bit of a different deal than going out there and trying to do a, a save a lot in a rural market. So I think all the fundamentals that we all know and understand are still there. That said, they've just been exacerbated uh, to a great extent in terms of much more difficult to get a secondary market deal done, uh, much more difficult to get a deal done over 100,000 square feet. Uh, so uh, that's that's pretty much the lending market on a topical. That's a topical answer to your very specific question. We are going to take a quick break here, and now a word from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, I know we always have guests on the show to retell their story and share how to work in a smarter way. So I would like to share something that we do and introduce all the landlords and building operators to a solution called Prism by one of the powerhouses in CRE, Building Engines. We use these guys here at DLC and as part of our strategy for operating effectively during the pandemic, communication to our retailers is key. Building engines is key to making that happen. And they just acquired a company called RAVT that really helps the retail space manage HVAC systems smarter and help with tenant compliance with their triple net lease obligations. They have a service and procurement vendor network built right into the solution that enables them to seamlessly keep up with maintenance perform repairs, and install replacements, all at market-beating prices. And for the retailers out there, 
We know you have a lot going on, meeting the ever-changing state and city protocols for operating during the pandemic. Building engines can help you too. By taking the burden of quarterly service and reporting on upkeep of your HVA system off your shoulders. This means more time to focus on your business and your customers. To learn more about what Building Engines can do for you, visit buildingengines.com slash retold. Thanks. Let me take it a step further. In March, I've heard every retail word known to man that goes in a lease. Department store, off price, discount, and the differences between a value retailer, discount retailer, and off price retailer, and all, all these things, and our leases define them. And then comes this word essential. The government created that we never we never heard of. And there's they might not be considered grocery stores, but they are essential. And let's call them Costco and Walmart and Target and um, BJ's Wholesale Club and Sam's Club. The first question I have. Anyone that sells toilet paper. <laughs> yes. And so my first question is, do you track those? Do you track Walmart Supercenters? Yeah, so we don't track the wholesale clubs, BJ's and Costco, um, because they kind of are their own ecosystem. And by and large, a lot of those are actually owned by the, the, the parent company. But we do track Walmart, track uh, Walmart neighborhood markets. We do the distinction between the two, yeah. So, so Walmart Supercenter could be 200,000 feet on its own. How are you seeing, or a target could be 150,000 feet on its own. My experience is lenders have been favorable to those. Are you seeing that? 100%. So Even though they're over 100,000 feet? Yeah. So yeah, those are, those are certainly, uh, lenders love Walmart. So I don't think that comes as a surprise to anybody. You know, from 2020, uh, Walmart was the number one listed banner. Uh, Walmart, Supercenter Walmart in general was the number one listed banner for grocery or shopping centers in 2020. So they had 70 went to market. And I think what we saw is a gravitation towards brokers saying, hey, look, we can't monetize a traditional, you know, grocery store, 45,000 or 55,000 square foot deal. Let's do more Walmart deals. So in, 20, uh, in 2020, there were 70 that went to market. That's actually down. 2019, there was 93 that went to market. So, but number one spot in both years, Walmart was the number one spot. Now, you could probably guess as it relates to essential retailers and, and grocery stores. And if you think through, okay, well, who's the grocery store that may be the single tenant? Of course, Aldi was number two. So Aldi, there was 34 Aldis that were listed across the country uh, in 2020. That was actually down from 66 in 2019. But your top five banners listed were Walmart, Aldi, Foodline, Kroger, Save-A-Lot in that order. Um, and I think that's indicative of you know, people trying to get deals done and what products will be monetized during COVID in an essential business type scenario. Now, one of the things I thought was interesting that that I, you know, try to put our finger on is that we talked about 100 deals over 100,000 square feet transacting, the transaction volume uh, was down. So deals that went to market over 100,000 square feet, they were grocery anchored in 2020, 133. In 2019, that number was 314. So that number is down 57%. And what I thought we would see would we'd see the proliferation of single tenant grocers and the single tenant space pretty much stayed on par. So in 2020, 136 went to market in 2019, 143. So it just dropped 5%. So that market stayed on, on pace, the single tenant grocery sector, and which is probably filled with Aldi's 
in, in deals in Walmart neighborhood markets, uh, but the deals over 100,000 square feet suffered. Now, with that being said, the kind of the outlier there is that Walmart supercenter, that Walmart transaction, which obviously the Walmart credit dominates the underlying uh, GLA and the underlying cash flow. Got it. That makes sense. Helpful. Interesting. Uh, one of the things we're seeing today is, you know, we, we saw this pandemic panic buying in March to grocery stores. Yeah. And we are seeing a pretty robust expansion of grocery stores right now in the United States. We're seeing the specialty grocers. We're seeing, um, you know, at both ends, the high end and the low end. I think one of the reasons is, is they're capturing food sales that were once sold by restaurants that are no longer there. And so they've got new market share and they're uh, really, ca- they're really um, taking advantage of that opportunity. I am seeing much more growth in what I would call the specialty grocer world than I am the traditional grocery world. Are you seeing the same? I'm not. Uh, no. I'm not. And maybe that's just geography uh, in terms of, and it may just be the product type that you specifically work with, but uh, we're seeing growth of, of the traditional grocery variety. Kroger. Awesome. So they're all opening new stores. That's correct. Yes. And, and you're the nail on the head. I don't think it's, Look, I don't think it's a controversial statement. I think we all went through this and lived through it. Uh, grocers had a windfall of capital go through, uh, go through their doors, and a lot of them are using, utilizing that capital to expand. A lot of them are utilizing that capital to uh, reinvest in their existing boxes. Uh, I think it's a huge. It's 2020 has been a great year for for those particular banners, and uh, you know they're reinvesting that money into growth and trying to keep that consumer. You know, the grocery business is a tough business. I mean, it is a really tough business in terms of trying to capture that consumer. It's very difficult for, for a, a new grocer to steal a consumer from a, a shopping center that they've been going to once a week for however long. So, you know, we can talk about delivery too as well if, if you want to dive into that. But essentially, we're seeing, to answer your question, to your point, we're seeing traditional grocers expand all over the country. I will caveat what I just said. We're seeing traditional grocers expand. We're just seeing the pace at which specialty grocers are growing uh, significantly higher than uh, traditional grocers. But um, how do you def- what's a define a specialty grocery? So I'm thinking when I'm thinking of that, I'm thinking the Aldi, Lidl, uh, a specialty, not traditional supermarket. Uh, I'm thinking of. Uh, the Sprouts and Trader Joe's and and even Whole Foods versus a traditional Shoprite, Stop and Shop, Food Lion, Publix, Win Dixie. Yes. So uh, okay, great. So what I would tell you on the Sprouts side, Sprouts has been just so consistent. They want to grow about ten percent a year. Uh, they crested over three hundred stores in twenty nineteen, uh, going into twenty twenty. They opened up around thirty. 35 stores this year. So they are like, they're, they're capped in consistency on their growth plan. They've altered their footprint just a little bit and just really haven't missed a beat. Aldi, you know, if you go to grocerynchor.com and you're a subscriber, uh, I feel like we're putting one to three articles a day about Aldi opening somewhere in the country. I mean, they, I don't understand. And, and they're, you know, I'd love to hear, you should get someone from Aldi on, on, on the pod because they'd be fascinating to talk to. But their development side, the ability to 
to grow. I mean, they're on pace. Like Dollar General amazes me, uh, as does Aldi, uh, their ability to, to produce stores. So those two, I think, have been very consistent. You mentioned, who else you mentioned? You mentioned Aldi. You mentioned Sprouts. Lidl. Yeah, so Lidl. Obviously, Lidl came in uh, a couple of years ago. They were the rage. That was all the news about Lidl. I think they uh, caught their their pace and they've altered their their development plan a little bit. At first, they were going to be only freestanding and standalone. They've altered that. And, you know, man, they, they hit a tough time. They hit in the Carolinas. They launched in the Carolinas in Virginia. And talk about a knife fight of a market in, in the Carolinas. I mean, that that is everyone is in the Carolinas. There's been a lot of scholarship and documentation and, and, and articles on on the Carolinas and grocery. That's kind of ground zero in terms of expansion. Tough place to launch. They launched there. Uh, they took their lumps and they're they're now an expansion plan as well, which obviously is expanded to New York and so forth. So, yeah, especially grocers have have not missed a beat. Uh, now, we also saw some special grocers hit turbulence. Uh, you know, Kroger pulled out of, of Florida, uh, by, by and large, with the Lucky's concept. Earth Fair had a little bit of struggles there. They've actually emerged, uh, and they're now in the development side again, launching new stores. So certainly there's some, some special grocers that took some lumps. But by and large, look, 2020, if you're a grocer, you cannot complain. It's a great year. Great year. Totally agree. Well, one of the other topics that we wanted to talk about moving along, that's really the investment sales side. What's going on from the market and grocery stores trading? I think you gave really good insights and good intel. I think the last piece, one of the things you are pretty up to speed on is what's going on with grocery delivery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, fascinating space. Uh, <laughs> By and large, I, look, I think that one of the things that attracted me to grocery that, that makes it unique is that one in seven people are going to walk into a grocery store today. One in seven. So name a retail vertical that's going to basically capture one in seven people. And so when you get that kind of uh, feedback loop, so to speak, uh, you're able to make adjustments much, much faster uh, because your customer is going to your store, your location, potentially once a week. At the worst case scenario, once a month, but at least once a week, or rather at least once a month, and at most once or even twice a week. So you can make adjustments there. So that's fascinating to me on a number of different levels. And I think grocers, the vertical itself has really led in terms of innovation. And so now we're starting to see that morph where now you can go pick up up your groceries. Uh, Walmart launched a, a store outside of Chicago that was strictly pickup. That was it. And uh, you turn and you roll out. Uh, Publix, and they're starting to run commercials in Florida about delivery. Uh, they went on. I'll send you a, a photo that I took. Um, they had an ad as you walked into Publix that they calculated the number of hours you spend in a Publix a year. It was 56 hours you spend in a Publix a year and said, you don't have to do that. I mean, how many retailers are out there telling you, don't come to our store? Uh, you can do Publix delivery, you can do Publix pickup. So it's a fascinating space. And I think it's fascinating to think about how uh, a consumer gets a good, either getting to the property or the property good. Concerns is, is that you risk customer loyalty, you know, on terms of delivery. And you're also handing that item to a third party quality that delivery reflects on you, but you don't necessarily control that. So Grocers are trying to solve for that right now. And then I think one of the big stories that I think a lot of folks have talked about is Kroger's relationship with Okada. 
in the fulfillment centers across the country. I think they've got 13 uh, right now, either in, in development. They have one in Florida right now that's supposed to open up in 2021. What's interesting about those particular fulfillment centers is that they cost roughly about $50 million. And it's the equivalent of having basically 35 grocery stores worth of capacity. So when Kroger puts one of those things down, they basically have locked 35 grocery stores worth of capacity uh, in a market. Now, we've not seen those uh, get up to speed yet. They're not officially running yet, but it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out and how that impacts the markets they allocate those, those fulfillment centers to. But it's a fascinating, fascinating space for sure. And it's one that there's going to be a lot of money put into as more and more people opt out of going to the grocery store and save that time and, and stay at home or, or use and allocate that time doing something else and your groceries get delivered to you. So, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how these companies adjust. The next 10 years in this particular vertical are going to be absolutely astonishing the changes they make. Well, let's talk about the, the, in, the, the most interesting one to me is Amazon. And they've opened a grocery store. They're pretty good at delivery. Uh, in general, as a retailer, what do you think about Amazon opening up grocery stores across the country? So I don't, you know, I don't know how much of that is, is out there in the public, but they've obviously got a new concept that they're opening up traditional box in that, in that regard. So meaning that it's a standard size between 40 and 50,000. And they've certainly plotted to, to set out to, to launch a lot of those stores. Look, Amazon's operating on a different balance sheet than the rest of the world. You know, they can go out there and they can take chances. They can afford to make mistakes. And that's exciting because we're going to see some revolution on the grocery side of things with a with a with a group that doesn't really uh, have the same balance sheet restrictions as, as more traditional grocers. So I think the one thing is their acquisition of Whole Foods, I think, spooked the market significantly. If you looked at that acquisition, you look at the stock prices of everybody. The next day, the stock prices and the stock the stock prices of those grocery stores, all those grocery stores are publicly traded fell. Uh, precipitously. It did not spook me or bother me. And, and I think most people in the commercial real estate business were not spooked or bothered by that. We're actually excited about that. I mean, look, you have Amazon that basically said, look, we demolished significant amount of retailers, but we could not demolish the grocery space. We had to become one of you uh, to be in the space. So I think that, you know, and, and you and I are talking a little about this offline, you know, Amazon did what they did in, you know, the late 2000s, I guess when they, when they acquired Whole Foods was mid 20 teens. Uh, it's really no different in a lot of ways. There's a lot of similarities in terms of the late 1800s, early 1900s with Sears and Aaron Montgomery Ward and the mail order catalogs. Uh, really what Amazon is, is the modern version of the mail order catalog at one point. And I don't think a lot of people realize the history of this, but in the early 1900s, uh, Montgomery Ward and, and, and Sears started with basically a one page flyer. And that catalog was then basically adopted. And I got some notes here on this. I was looking at this actually last night, uh, thinking that we may talk about this. But just to give you an idea, in 1897, these two guys did about $7 million in sales. By 1920, Sears and Montgomery Ward in the catalog business was doing $500 million of sales out of catalogs by 1920. Now, to put that in perspective, that's roughly 5% of the GDP of the country in 1920. And to give you an idea, Amazon, I think two years ago, did $450 billion in sales. That's 2.3% of GDP. So the catalog business was twice the size of Amazon in the 1920s. Now, get this. The reason the Postal Service is what it is to, today 
is because some savvy guys, uh, namely uh, Sears, went to Congress and said, hey, look, there's guys out in rural markets, there's families out in rural markets, farmers out there that cannot afford to get mail order catalogs. So what we want is we want free shipping. And the Congress gave them free shipping. So at the height of their night in the 1920s, doing 5% of GDP, Congress basically said, hey, yeah, you know what? Go take free shipping. We will sponsor that. So imagine if Jeff Bezos and or you know, Amazon in general approached Congress and said, we want the United States to pay for shipping. I think everyone would go bananas. That's a technical term. But yet <laughs> Aaron Montgomery Ward and Sears, Warren Sears, did that in the 1920s. Now, they came with this revolutionary idea in the 20s when sales began to drop off. Uh, sales began to drop off in the 20s. The catalog industry began to get saturated. And so these guys, on their own accord, said, well, you know what we should do? We should start storefronts. That's what we should do. We should start storefronts. And so that's what they did. They launched storefronts. And obviously, the rest is history. Sears and Montgomery Ward started storefronts. And that catalog business kind of maintained equilibrium, but dropped significantly off after that. So all of this is just a cycle and it repeats itself. And I think that if people understand the fact that, hey, look, there's nothing new under the sun, uh, the, Amazon is basically a more uh, technological mail order business. Uh, and yet it's half the size of what Sears and, and Montgomery Ward were in the 1920s. It puts things a little bit in perspective, I think. Totally does. Just so we're clear, what happened was Ward and Sears lobbied Congress for free shipping, and that was the genesis of the post office? It had a lot to do with the post office. Yeah, absolutely. The expansion of the post office, for sure. Wow. Catalog business is really responsible for the postal business. Uh, because think about it, delivery did not exist. It, I mean, it was just unheard of in terms of like packages and so forth. I mean, it, it was a totally foreign concept. It was totally revolutionary at that point. So breaking news, breaking news on on the Retail Retold podcast. Uh, yeah, the postal business is, uh, really owes itself uh, to the retail business by and large. Right. Yeah. The, the post office is pre that, but the expansion of the postal business is the expansion of the postal business. Wow. Well, that's a good note to end on. Uh, really fascinating stuff. Want to bring us to the last part of the show. Are you ready? I hope so. I don't know what's happening here, but lay it on me, buddy. All right. So we got three questions. Here they are. Question one. <laughs> what extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? Easy. Toys R Us, man. Toys R Us. Love I mean, I, I can tell you this. Like, think about this. Toys R Us. If, if someone's at my age, a little bit younger, a little bit older, uh, you can finish this line. I don't want to grow up. I want to be a Toys R Us kid. Think about that. Toys R Us is in your head. You know how much money it took to get that line in your head? I mean, the, the amount of marketing that they did uh, to make sure that line's ingrained in people's head is, is off the charts. So yeah, I, as a kid going to Toys R Us, that was like the highlight of the month. You know, my parents would, you know, I'd save my allowance up my $10 or something and go up and down the aisles of Toys R Us. And I think about that, like, if I can, I think about that retailer, like, Toys R Us should exist. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different reasons why it doesn't. But uh, I think Gary Vanderchuk said this one time, like, you know, we should be doing company parties at Toys R Us. Like, we should be dumping slime on each other's heads. We should be you know, the Lego championship should be at Toys R Us. There's just so many opportunities there. 
uh, that that company should still exist. But yeah, if I had to pick one, I'm probably partial. Uh, nostalgia is a very strong emotion and a very strong sales tool. So I'll go with Toys R Us. Awesome. Love the answer. Question two, what is the last product north of $20 that you bought in a store? Uh, this weekend, I went to Dick's Sporting Goods. I went to go buy a hoodie, a black hoodie, a black Nike hoodie. They were sold out. Uh, so I ended up buying a, uh, like a, a light jacket from Dick's Sporting Goods. I think it was like 28 bucks or something like that. I don't know how you're sold out at, of, of Nike hoodies, but they sold out in Christmas and they have not been restocked. So Got if it. anyone's watching this from Dick's, Send some Nike hoodies down to Florida, if you would, because the weather is tumultuous down here. It's a balmy 68 today and uh, we need hoodies. So awesome. Last question. We talked a lot about Walmart. Yeah. If you and I were in Walmart and I lost you, what wow. aisle would I, I find, find you in? Uh, food. Food. Look, we're not walking to Walmart unless they sell groceries, Chris. It's against my constitution. So we're in the food aisle, or at least that's where you find me. And, uh, I don't know which part of that. I don't know. Maybe you find me in the chips and salsa aisle. Like, I don't know. Are we just going to eat chips and salsa for the rest of our lives? I think that's it. Like life is like taxes, uh, taxes, life, kids, marriage, and then chips and salsa. That's probably where you find me. Awesome. Well, listen, Mark, this was great. Thank you for playing. Um, and uh, really appreciate you coming on. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. Love the podcast. Retail Retold. Awesome. Keep it up. I think you're doing a great thing. Uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.